Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Today, we're launching a church-wide initiative called First Allegiance 2020. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but there's an election coming up. 51 days from now, to be exact. Uh, For some of us, we're fired up, and we're all in, and we're ready to go. Others of us are checked out. We're over it, and we just don't care. And a bunch of us are probably somewhere in the middle. We know it's important. We're trying to stay engaged but it's just kind of exhausting and life is already complicated enough at the moment. And then for us as Christians, there's this whole other reality that we're trying to navigate. And that is, what does it look like to be involved in the world of politics in a way that's consistent with our faith in Jesus? And so that's really what our First Allegiance Initiative is all about. During this election season, we want to campaign for Jesus to be the king of our whole lives, including our political engagement. So what does that look like for Antioch during the 2020 campaign and election season? How can we turn from the destructive idols of political ideology and turn towards the unshakable kingdom of God? Or what would it look like if this season actually resulted in prayerful and respectful discussion rather than shallow slogans, in fruitful action rather than empty words, in reconciliation rather than division. We're launching the First Allegiance Initiative to pursue a unique type of political engagement that's focused on what is most important to Jesus, meaning how do we love God And how do we love our neighbors well? So over the next couple months, we're going to reflect on what civic participation looks like through the lens of the gospel and how the character of Christ should shape not just how we vote, but how we conduct ourselves before, during, and after this election. So the idea is to make space for people of all types of political leanings while challenging all types of political idols. And ultimately, together, we will acknowledge that Jesus is the King of Kings and the only one worthy of our first allegiance. So let me take a few minutes this morning to walk us through some of the components of this initiative. And I want to start by giving a shout out to our good friends at Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona, who came up with most of the vision and vocabulary that we're using. Their pastors, uh, Jim Mullins and Josh Butler, have done a beautiful job putting together their King of Kings campaign. And we have learned so much from them and are creating our own version of it here at Antioch. So here's what's going it look like? There's a few pieces. Number one, Sundays. For the next 10 Sundays, meaning the eight weeks until the election and then for the two weeks after the election, we're going to be spending time studying the Gospels, looking at places in the life and teachings of Jesus that show us what it means to pledge our allegiance to him first in everything. Secondly, forums. 
um, we're going to be holding three or four First Allegiance forums over the next couple of months. And these forums are going to be interactive online gatherings that will feature presentations by leading national voices on the topics of faith and politics. People like Michael Ware and Eugene Cho will be with us. And these forums will include opportunities for breakout discussion groups that are designed to help us learn how to engage in healthy political discipleship and discourse. Third, prayer and fasting. We want to invite you to create space to center yourself in the love and presence of Jesus throughout this season through devoted prayer. Now, we've got a booklet of prayer resources to guide you, and every Tuesday from now until the election, we're going to, together as a church, spend time fasting and praying for the flourishing of our church, our city, our state, and our country. And then finally, the First Allegiance Commitment. We have a 10-point covenant that frames a Christ-like posture during election season. And we're going to invite you to make a commitment to pledge your allegiance to Christ and his kingdom by signing your name on this huge document. So let me quickly walk us through the 10 commitments. Number one, worship. I commit my allegiance to King Jesus over all other idols and ideologies. Number two, love of neighbor. By the way, since we're using the Roman numerals here, did you know there are 11 types of people in the world? Those who understand Roman numerals and those who don't. Number two, I commit to participating in civic life as a means of loving and serving my neighbor rather than just serving my own interests. Number three, image of God. I commit to honoring the image of God in all people by treating them with respect and abstaining from dehumanizing caricatures. Number four, biblical wisdom. I commit to having my views challenged by the biblical story rather than using the Bible to proof text my predetermined positions. Number five, fruitful speech. I commit to engaging in political discourse with speech that's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Number six, humble learning. I commit to being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger as I seek to learn from the varied perspectives within the body of Christ. Number seven, remove the log. I commit to giving more attention to critiquing the potential flaws in my own political leanings, conduct, and sin than I give to scrutinizing others. Number eight, biblical justice. I commit to understanding and pursuing justice as I engage in civic life, not minimizing scripture's repeated call to seek justice and allowing scripture to critique popular conceptions of justice in our culture. Number nine, peacemaking. I commit to face-to-face -face conflict resolution rather than arguments on social media. And number 10, loving enemies. I commit to loving and praying for my so-called political enemies, especially those whom I have the hardest time loving and praying for. This includes a commitment to pray for our government leaders regardless of who wins the election.
And those are the Ten Commitments. Finally, here is the first allegiance commitment. During this election season, I commit to following Jesus in my political participation and discourse. While I know that I cannot perfectly live out this vision, I'm committed to growing in these areas as a means of loving God and my neighbors during these conflicted times. So that's the commitment. And then the idea is that we're going to sign our names onto this thing together. We've got a giant version of this pledge that has room for our entire church or those who are wanting to devote themselves uh, to this commitment. Obviously, the hope was to be able to do this uh, today and in person, but with the smoke and the weather and all that, we're going to have to wait another week. So that is what we're doing for the next couple of months. I hope that we're still going to have a good chunk of Sundays to worship together outside at the amphitheater, but we'll have to see what happens with the fires and the weathers and COVID and all that. But we're going to do our best. We're going to keep you posted and we're going to do this thing together one way or another. So this morning, we're going to dive into our first commitment, worship. I commit my allegiance to King Jesus over all other idols and ideologies. So as the church of Jesus, this is our number one calling, to exist in the world as a worshiping community, to be the one place in all of creation where the Lordship of Christ is unopposed. And so the first question of our allegiance has to do with worship. To be Christian is to trust and to treasure Jesus above all else, to commit our love and loyalty to him as our creator and redeemer, Lord and savior, master and teacher, shepherd and friend. So be real clear about this up front. Ultimately, this initiative isn't about the election or politics. It's about Jesus and his eternal kingdom that's already here and is still on its way. So our first commitment is to worship Christ alone. So our question today is what does that look like in this politically charged moment in which we find ourselves? Does pledging our first allegiance to Christ look like abstaining from the world of politics altogether? Does it mean not getting involved at all? Well, some Christians would say so, and there's a case to be made for that. But our conviction is that the gospel of Jesus is about the reconciliation of all things, that God cares deeply about this world, this whole world, and he wants everyone and everything in it to be redeemed and restored for the sake of his glory and the joy of creation. So instead of dividing the world into the sacred and the secular and putting something like politics in the secular category of things that God doesn't care about and that Christians shouldn't worry themselves with. We're rejecting those categories and we're saying with the Apostle Paul that Christ is all and is in all. In him, all things were created. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So politics isn't something that falls outside the scope of the gospel. It's not something that Christians should ignore. It's part of this world that God has made and that he's making new. So instead of checking out, we're diving in, but we are doing it 
first and foremost as worshipers of Jesus. Which, let's just be totally honest, it is hard to know exactly what that looks like, right? We have 2,000 years now of conversations and arguments about the relationships between Christianity and culture, between religion and politics, between faith and ethics, between church and state. These are complicated topics, but don't worry, I've got it figured out. Um, there's lots of different ways to think about all this stuff. There's lots of different views, but one way to look at it is by naming some of the most prominent political ideologies in our country and understanding the different visions that each of them offer. So Dr. Bruce Ashford, who's a public theologian that's done a bunch of work in the arena of faith and politics, uh, proposes that there are six modern political ideologies that are prominent in North America and most of Europe. They are classic liberalism, social conservatism, progressivism, nationalism, socialism, and libertarianism. Now, let's take a moment and walk through them real quickly in random order. And I want us to ask what each of these ideologies holds as the highest good and where it places its emphasis in pursuing that vision. So first, classical liberalism. And by the way, we're talking about political liberalism here, not theological or other. In classical liberalism, the highest good is individual autonomy. And the emphasis is on freeing the person from any sort of social or moral norms. Uh, number two, conservatism, uh, specifically purely social conservatism. The highest good in conservatism is cultural heritage. And the emphasis is preserving the values and vision of those who came before us. Uh, progressivism which is really the opposite of conservatism. Its highest good is social progress, and the emphasis is on dismissing our cultural heritage and instead pursuing change. Uh, next is nationalism. Its highest good is the ultimacy of one people group within a nation. Uh, the emphasis is on promoting and preserving the dominance of a particular group, be it cultural, ethnic, racial, or religious. Uh, socialism, the highest good is material equality, and the emphasis is on limiting private control of resources and reducing disparities in wealth. And finally, libertarianism. Its highest good is personal and economic freedom, and the emphasis is on limiting the expansion of government and basically letting people just run their own lives. Okay, so obviously these are very generalized descriptions, and there are lots of versions and variations of each of these, but the point is to start to see how people living within the same society can see the world so differently, including Christians. Now, there are all kinds of conversations to be had about which of these political ideologies is the most Christian or the most consistent with a biblical worldview. But the truth is that there are in the world Christians who have and who do hold to each of these views. 
Now, that in and of itself is probably shocking to some of us. Some of us cannot wrap our minds around the idea of a Christian socialist or a Christian nationalist. But here's what I want to say. I'm really not concerned about which of these ideologies you hold to. They all probably have strengths and weaknesses. Our goal throughout this initiative is not to get you to switch from one political leaning or ideology to another. I really don't care about that. Here's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about when ideology becomes idolatry. See, even the best ideologies, political or otherwise, will happily move from being ideas to becoming idols. Now, an idol is anything that takes God's place in our life. Anything that we look to, to be what only God can be for us. It's possible to make an idol out of anything, even good things. But in a moment like this one, it's especially easy for our political ideology to turn into idolatry. There was a study done at Stanford University several years ago, and what they found was that back in 1960, parents who were asked who they would least want their child to marry, their answers were primarily someone of another race or another religion. But now, in the last few years, when parents are asked the same question, their first answer is that they wouldn't want their kid to marry someone of another political party. See, whether it's our politics or some other aspect of our identity or ideology, we all have places in our lives where Jesus poses a threat. We are all prone to falling into the trap of prioritizing our political vision over our commitment to Christ. Now, here's what's crazy. Even Jesus himself experienced this kind of temptation. In the passage that Linda read for us this morning in Matthew chapter 4, we have the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, and it's this series of temptations that Jesus faces from the devil. And I want to focus in on the final one in verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about this. Typically, we understand temptation as the temptation to sin or the temptation to do bad things. We know what it's like to be tempted to lie or cheat or steal. Like we're tempted towards sin in all kinds of ways. But what's the sin here or what's the temptation here? In other words, the thing that Satan is trying to get Jesus to do, it doesn't actually sound like a bad thing, right? 
In fact, this temptation is for Jesus to become the ruler of the world. It's the temptation is that Jesus would become the king of the universe. Isn't that exactly what we want? For Jesus to be the king of the world, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? That sounds like a good thing, not a bad thing. So what would be the problem with that? Well, the true temptation here has to do with worship. The answer is in Jesus' response. Verse 10, he says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, the true temptation here has to do with worship. The problem with Jesus becoming the ruler of the kingdoms of the world is that he would have to worship someone other than God. Specifically, this, we might call it political opportunity for power would require him to first become a Satan worshiper. And now we start to see the true problem here. See, the path that Jesus was on, the mission that the Father sent the Son on, was one that eventually would lead to Jesus being throned as king of the world. But that was a path that would be marked by a certain kind of road. It's a path that required sacrifice and suffering and love. And so the temptation that's given to Jesus here is the temptation to skip the suffering, to bypass the cross in the pursuit of political power. And Jesus recognizes the trap and he rejects the way of the sword, the way of power and violence and force. And instead he embraces the way of the cross, the way of suffering, sacrifice and love. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus refuses to rise to political power if it means compromising his commitment to worship God first. So how do you know if your ideology, however well-defined it is, has become your idol. I wanna give you a few things to think about as we invite God to examine our hearts and to show us if we have placed our trust and treasure in something or someone else other than him. So here's some diagnostic tools to pay attention to. How do you know if your ideology has become an idol? First, problem emotions. Over these next couple months, 
particularly in conversations related to politics. I want to encourage you to pay attention to your emotions. Notice shifts in your mood. What is it that causes you to feel anxious or panicked? What is it that causes you to feel depressed or despondent? What is it that causes you to become uh, rageful or angry? Pay attention to those problem emotions and you might start recognizing idolatry. Secondly, I want you to pay attention to your body, to your bodily reactions. Do you find yourself in a heated political conversation with a racing heart or with a spinning mind or with a tightening gut? Those are signs that maybe one of your idols is being threatened. Third, pay attention to sinful behaviors. Or in other words, what is it or who is it that brings out the worst in you? that causes you to do things or to say things that are inconsistent with the heart of Jesus. Look for rage and hatred, bitterness, especially any form of violence, lying, slander, when those sins find their place in our lives. There's a good chance one of our idols is being threatened. And finally, think about your relational circles. Who are the people that you're surrounded by? And ask yourself this question, what kind of person can you not imagine having as a friend? You should, I believe, have friends that are way to the right of you and way to the left of you. And even though you and those friends may see the world very differently, you're still able to see the value in that person and in that relationship. All of us have ways of turning ideologies into idols. All of us, all of us are prone to this temptation. Now, real quick, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know who really needs to hear this? You know who I wish was watching this? You know who I'm gonna forward this to? It's natural for your minds to go there. I wanna encourage you to stop and not think primarily about all the other people you know who need to hear this. And I want you to process this for yourself. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you the places where you are prone to pledge your allegiance to something or to someone else over King Jesus. So I wanna close by saying this, as your pastor, I am committing myself to worship. I am committing my allegiance to King Jesus over all other idols and ideologies. And as we go through this journey over the next couple months, that is my commitment to God and to you in this community. That I will do my best to serve and to lead this community 
as one whose first allegiance is to Christ alone. And I hope you'll join me on this journey.